Good morning, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors. Um, sorry, I'm getting situated here. So, um, I want to, uh, first of all, claim Jesus' promise from Acts 1.8. And he said to his followers, and he says to us even thousands of years later, that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And we will be his witnesses from here to the end of the earth. That's true now, and it will be true till the day that he comes back. So this uh, Sunday marks a shift in our preaching through uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, When uh, we, uh, Buzzy, Brett, Fred, and I were discussing going through this book, I did some research on the best way to preach through uh, the tome. Um, There were a good number of suggestions uh, that divided the book basically, and this was even in the commentaries, between two sections. Chapters 1 through 9 and then 10 through 31. The suggestions were to preach sequentially through the first chapters of 1 through 9 and then change the method by tackling the book more topically uh, for chapters 10 through 31. So that's what we're doing. Uh, Chapter 10 marks a shift in how the book of Proverbs is communicated, whereas the, the sections that we just completed... And the first nine chapters are easier to tackle in sections. The chapters and verses of Proverbs from here on on out are a little bit more staccato, where they jump around. Uh, That they're placed together almost like a stream of consciousness type of thinking. No less valuable, just different in method. So following this wise suggestions of doing topics talked about in the final 22 chapters of Proverbs rather than sequentially, will help us grasp uh, Proverbs better. We'll keep doing the Salah sermons interspersed amongst these uh, topics, but the topics addressed will be anger, family, friendship, folly, humility, money, justice, honesty, correction, speech, happiness. And, of course, we can't ignore the Proverbs 31 woman, which is the last chapter there. End it with the ladies. That's a good thing. Uh, Proverbs will be the source and reason for doing these topics, but we also be drawing from other parts of the Bible just to give uh, some clarity from the Old and New Testament to give, help give flesh more insight to each of the topics addressed. Remember, our title for this series is uh, Old Testament Twitter. Drawing that title mainly from these last 22 chapters of Proverbs, which are essentially a list of succinct and poignant sayings meant to poke and prod the conscience conscience and refresh the soul. These pithy uh, lines are ideally suited for our current culture's addiction to brevity, uh, especially in the context of the social media arena. So as I mentioned at the start of our series on Proverbs, when I did my first sermon in this series, is let me encourage you all to share these scenes on social media if you by choice or by force have to enter the halls of the marketplace of social media. I myself have left that marketplace. I encourage you all maybe to do that, but if you must, I encourage you maybe to share some of these proverbs. Scattering such seeds into our community 
into our culture, I think, can invite a harvest for the gospel and its values. And I'd ask that you do that. As this week has shown us, there is a deep and dark problem going on in our country. And it's not just in our country, it's beyond that. And the physical things that we see are only that. Physical expressions. What's behind that is what we need to be asking. That is what these words from this book here, given to us and others over thousands of years ago, addresses. This uh, week, God's word through Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, echoed, perhaps even echoed in you, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I think we would all agree that that is very true. Indeed, who can understand it? I've heard that verse and read it over the years, but this week I read the very next verse in Jeremiah. I've always remembered that verse, but I let my eye wander to the next one. Perhaps we should let the answer, let that answer the question, who can understand it? Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I, the Lord. When I read that, I said, wow, and then I shuddered ever so slightly. I'll have that, I'll leave that there for us to think about. So brothers and sisters, use these Old Testament tweets God wrote thousands of years ago on social media. He, he was the first uh, tweeter. Our neighbors, friends, and countrymen, our fellow human beings of this world, are wandering and have questions. These are good answers to sell. So back to Proverbs and this week's characteristic we are looking at. This week we are looking at the characteristic of or trait of diligence. And when I saw that this particular character trait fell to me, I thought, how awful. I am not diligent, but my wife is. (laughs) So as I speak this morning, whenever I talk about diligence as if I had figured this out, what I'm really doing is drawing from my better half so as not to appear hypocritical. After all, God's word says, my wife and I are one flesh. So I have diligence by gift only and not by exercise of it. (laughs) Thank you, God. Thank you, Sarah. Um, So let me read a fable. One bright day in late autumn, a family of ants were bustling about in the warm sunshine, drying out the grain they had stored up during the summer when a, when a starving grasshopper, his fiddle under his arm, came up and humbly begged for a bite to eat. What? cried the ants in surprise. Haven't you stored anything away for winter? What in the world were you doing all last summer? I didn't have time to store up any food, said the wine the grasshopper. I was so busy making music that before I knew it, the summer was gone. The ants shrugged their shoulders in disgust. Making music, were they, they cried. Very well, now dance. And they turned their backs on the grasshopper and went there on, their own work, on with their own work. There's a time for work and a time for play. 
That fable is an up-to-date version uh, of Aesop's fable on the, uh, the grasshopper and the ants. But from my research, it may be, have even older roots than that, possibly even back to the time of ancient Greece. The idea of such fables, and to some degree the words from Proverbs, diligence is good, carelessness is not good. That is good advice, whatever time, whichever place you live. But as believers in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the gospel, that says, by our own efforts, our own exercise of virtue, we garner nothing near to attaining salvation. How do we think about these true and beneficial platitudes of diligence being better than carelessness or sloth? How does it jive? Why be diligent when it does nothing for me or us? There are, of course, a lot of assumptions in my questions, but I think to better address them, I want to go through three things. One is the current definition of diligence. Two is what is the definition of diligence in this book here, Proverbs? And lastly, what does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth have to do uh, do those de- uh, definitions and us? So the current definition of del- diligence. As I said, when I first saw... I was going to teach on this subject, I realized I did not match the definition of diligence we have in our current culture. Diligence means the act of accomplishing some sort of task, uh, focused, um, unstoppable almost. It meant remaining focused, undistracted toward a goal, usually an attainable one. When one works, one must be diligent. I asked Sarah how she would define diligence, and she essentially said similar things, that it is how focused and hard you work to get a job done. We see this even in the fable I started with. The grasshopper was unfocused, chose poorly, and starved. The ants remained focused, chose wisely, and lived. This idea of the reward of hard work is where diligence is placed in our culture. Uh, The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it as steady, earnest, and energetic effort, devoted and painstaking work and application to accomplish an undertaking. The author of the Jungle Book, Rudyard Kipling, once wrote, Gardens are not made by singing, Oh, how beautiful, and then sitting in the shade. (laughs) By this definition, my wife is the queen of diligence. She has a PhD. She's well-versed and exercised in the application of diligence. In fact, I use this to my advantage to deceive her when I arranged circumstances to pop the question and asking her to marry me. How did I do that? Well, it's a fun and longer story that we would be glad to share with you, uh, come and sit on our porch. But one of the consequences of my wife's careful diligence is that she loses any sense of time and geography. She's so focused on getting her stuff, uh, her goal done, being diligent, that the clock and wherever she is disappears. It would not be unusual for my wife to get up in the morning, have coffee and a banana, sit down to work, and the next thing that enters his consciousness outside the work that she is doing diligently, is that it is 11 p.m. at night and she is wondering why she's hungry. <laughs> Speaking of hunger, in my defense, I think there is something I am diligent about. Food. Second breakfast. Second breakfast. Yeah, second breakfast. Exactly. Thank you, Kim. I like food. Ask my wife. She can't understand why I would watch videos that have no talking or narration but showed 20 or more minutes of someone preparing a pizza or an egg sandwich. She, she just can't. They're not talking. Yes, but they're showing me. I watch a lot of these videos. The YouTube channel is called Travel Thirsty, and boy, do I. 
So you can see how this is helpful in my marriage. And uh, that um, I'm always thinking about the next meal. My wife is thinking about the next thing that she needs to get done. I'm thinking about the next meal. What are we having for lunch? What are we having for dinner? That's, that's good for her, just as it's good for me. That What do we have to do? Yeah, 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 but what are we eating? Anyway. It also speaks to how I was able to deceive her in setting up uh, for my marriage proposal. Maybe diligence isn't at all it's cracked up to be, but we'll move on. Uh, This is the current prevailing definition of diligence, that of focused hard work. At this point, I would normally enter into asking some application questions, but if you're like me and have already measured yourself against the definition, I did it before even preparing for this sermon, then perhaps... You've already generated sufficient guilt about diligence that even asking questions would be kicking a dead horse. And as one of my one of our Campus Crusade for Christ's favorite seminary professors, Howard Hendricks, would say in such moments, "That's too convicting. Let's move on." <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to get too convicting. You know, let's, let's just go to the next thing. Okay, we'll go. What is the definition of diligence in the Book of Proverbs? The definition for the trade of diligence in Proverbs isn't far from the more modern one, though there is a measurable nuance to it that adds some depth uh, to mere hard work to accomplish the task. But before I go into that, it might be good to give some commentary on this trait and other traits forthcoming as we continue through our study of Proverbs. In his book, uh, Our Our Only World, uh, Wendell Berry writes some thoughts on the ideas of Analysis, the exercise of analysis, and the word itself. I did not know this until I read his book about this, but apparently the, wor- wor- the root word for analyze means to undo. Which he also points out is similar to the word anatomy, which means dissect. What is behind these words is a uniquely scientific and even Western idea that, it, that in order to better an- understand something, you must take it apart. You analyze it. You undo it. You have something you want to analyze. Hmm, take that and look at that. For... To understand the human body, you anatomy it. You dissect it. Okay, let me see here. Got a whole body. Understand. Let's take that heart out. Let's look at uh, it. To understand an idea or a worldview or a culture better, you analyze it or undo it. To understand a body, you dissect it. The assumption is that to understand something big, you take it apart and look at the parts. The drawback is you lose the integrity of the whole, which begs the question that is it really advancing the understanding of something when you take it apart? For example... Understanding what a human heart is is only goes so far unless it is observed in its functioning place in the human body. Another example, finding out what the meaning of diligence is not possible if we merely looked at the letter I. If we looked at the letter I, we would have no idea what the word diligence means. We might say it has two I's in it, but that's all that we would get. But when that letter is placed with the ones around it, a greater and more beautiful things thing happens. We see the whole. I wasn't going to do this, but I'll read you this little section. It's a quick thought from him. It's really interesting. He says this. 
A proper understanding or under tension to our language, moreover, informs us that the Greek root of anatomy means dissection, and that of analysis means to undo. The two words have essentially the same meaning. Neither suggests a respect for formal integrity. I suppose the nearest antonym or opposite to both is a word we borrow directly from Greek, poiesis, making or creation, which suggests that the work of the poet, the composer, or the maker is the necessary opposite of that of the analyst and the anatomist. Then he says this, some scientists, I think, are in this sense poets. That's nice of him. Interesting, poiesis is actually used in Ephesians. We are God's poiesis. We are his poems. So Barry is saying the opposite of taking apart is actually creating, making something, artistic even. How does this apply to our look at the trait diligence in the Bible? As we go forward in looking at various subjects and traits in the rest of the book of Proverbs, we must not lose the forest for the trees. As we analyze or undo or take them apart each idea, we can't remove them from their relationship to the whole. In this case, the other ideas in the book and the concepts shown in the word of God itself. That would be like saying we can have an understanding of human beings by looking at a dissected heart on a lab table or the definition of a word by looking at just one of the letters. That's just not possible. Those can be helpful, but not the whole story. What this means here is that diligence is related and better understood by where it is placed in this context. For example, a good portion of chapters 10 through 15 of Proverbs mentions speech and money. You go through it, look through the words, look at the words, you go through those sections, look at the words, number of words that related to the lips, the tongue, speech, look at where it talks about riches and wealth and garnering things. That happened, there's a lot of that in 10 through 15. All this morning's readings from Proverbs were from those chapters. So right there we have a little bit of a sense of how diligence is defined or even identified. How one attains wealth or how one speaks is related to diligence. As it would be to all subjects mentioned. Here's what's cool. At the same time, when Buzzy and Fred get up here to do their sermons on money and speech... And they are the two who are doing them. I looked it up. We have the list. Hovering over their content will be the idea of diligence. Even if they never talked about, even if Buzzy got up here or Fred got up and they never mentioned the word diligence or its concept, it would still come out as they talk about these because they're related. It's like you can't take the heart from the body or the eye from the word diligence. They have to be together in order to be understood. Because a full understanding of God's word does not dissect it or undo it. Another example for diligence being better understood, not in isolation, but in relationship to what is around it, is in the modern definition I just went over. Now, you might have thought, like I did, that the way we define diligence today sounds a lot like the trait of determination or being uh, being a determined person. And you're not necessarily wrong. But here's the nuanced and relational difference. Determination is more about a decision of the will by its own definition, whereas diligence is more about the actual action of doing something. They're related. Both of these words have a lot of crossover, 
You could call them like kissing cousins. They're, they're, they're siblings. But individually, they are better understood even as we look at the nuance of difference between them. Let's not lose the forest for the trees. So what is diligence here in Proverbs? Here in, the ver- in this verse, the word in the Hebrew is called is, is harasim. H-A-R-U-S-I-M is the way it's spelled in, in English. Now, what is interesting about this word is that it means sharp. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Proverbs uh, about this word, says that the word keen is near the mark in English, which means intellectually alert. Keen insight. They see things. Sharp. They go at... They make, they make the, the analysis um, quick, well, good. As I was looking into this word, Harrison, I noticed that in the Old Testament, the use of the word would be associated with an agricultural tool called a threshing sledge. I didn't know this. I actually looked up the word, and they have lists of where it was. Whenever this word was used, sometimes, not always there would be a reference to the agricultural tool called a threshing sledge. And I'm like, well, what's a threshing sledge? I know, I know what threshing is as far as separating grain from the stalks. I'm glad you asked that too. But I never knew this, but after gathering of the grains, so one goes out and gets the stalks of grains, whether rye or wheat or whatever, uh, from the harvest, the stalks of the grain and the grain in them, so they're still together, were taken to the threshing floor, which is this large space usually marked out by maybe some sort of stone outer crop area there. The place where the usable and edible grain were separated from the inedible stalks. So they put them all out, and they're all connected together, the grain, the good grain, and the unusable stalks, at least for the human body. The first stage of threshing that was done was using a threshing, a threshing sledge. You've got to say that five times fast. Or a sled. A threshing sledge was a wooden board, maybe four feet long, high or long, and two feet wide, and a thin piece of board, uh, with holes drilled in them where things made of stone or bone or metal like teeth were placed in the holes on facing one side, forming a board that looked like a bunch of teeth sticking out of them. That board would be pulled over by animals around the threshing floor over the top of the gathered grain. Why? Because when that was done, the edible, usable grains would be separated and broken from the unusable or inedible stalks, getting ready for the next stage of threshing, which was when you threw the mass of... You remember threshing, we usually took a little pitchfork, you throw it in the air, right? Wind, you have a wind that day, and the grain falls, and then this broken stalks blow over and you get grain. Well, the first stage of that was this threshing sledge. So, that was at times the way God used, followed up this word diligence, meaning we need to be as, you need to be as sharp as a, a threshing sledge. So that word diligence has embedded into it it's meaning the sharpness of a threshing sledge. I looked up, you can actually look up. This is for, I encourage you in your microgroups. You, you've got smartphones and computers now, right? We've got those. Write in, uh, type in threshing sledge and then look up videos. And you can actually see videos of them still using threshing sledges in like the, um, 
North Africa and the Middle East. It's actually fascinating to watch them. They actually ride it sometimes. There's a guy who's riding the sled and he's being pulled by, and they're being pulled in circles. He's dividing the grain. All right? And there's more than this. More than just threshing sledge. You say, yes, I say. There's more than just threshing sledge. I also noticed that a, a root word that is also related to the word harrison is also for the word for the metal gold. Isn't that interesting? Not always. It's not common. It's not a full money. But together, when God was talking about diligence and the and, you know, writers of, of Old Testament were writing diligence, it's possible they had in mind this threshing sledge and gold, sharp and gold, like fruit and richness and sharpness. How cool is that? Diligence could mean sharpness and gold. So let's read the verse 4, Proverbs 10, verse 4 this way. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the sharp threshing sledge makes rich. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of gold, the gold makes rich. How cool is that? That's, that helps bring breadth and depth to how we apply diligence, perhaps, in our own life. Finally, what does the gospel, what does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth have to do with diligence? And that's where the passage from Hebrews comes in. Reading, starting from verse 10, which says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. That word earnestness is also in... Sarah's translation was diligence. The context of these verses here, 10 through 12, where the writer of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to be diligent or earnest, not sluggish in the preceding verses, those are about the gospel, about the work of Jesus. In the first nine verses here, He states clearly, an understanding by faith of the gospel is what drives the diligence. It's what inherits the promises of it. He makes the distinction to those who understand it and live by it, and those who don't and walk away from it. The work of Jesus is clearly talked about. That precedes this idea of, we desire each of you to show the same diligence or earnestness to have full assurance of hope. It's that is what inherits the promises. Thinking about this point reminded me of the verse in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, verse 51, where it says this about Jesus. When the days drew near for Jesus, for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. See a little determination there and also diligence, though. That phrase, he set his face, gets me. I heard some translations use the phrase that he set his face like flint, like a stone, toward Jerusalem. 
And of course, in that translation, it's referencing Isaiah 50, verse 7, which says, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Isn't that crazy? Luke's gospel of the four gospels is the most chronological, supposedly. And this line of Jesus being determined and exercising diligence, starting the acts of diligence to go toward Jerusalem, that was early in the account. This is chapter 9 of Luke. There are 15 more chapters in Luke after this verse. And his passion, when he's arrested and crucified, that account is still 13 chapters away. So... Early on, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew he was going, and he was diligent about that. He set his face, perhaps like flint. I will do this. Now, did he struggle? Of course. Remember the prayers? He prayed so that he was sweating blood. It's still a struggle, but he set his face like flint. He chose to do it. Jesus knew his path. He knew his end game. He saw it sharply. And it was gold. He combined the kindred traits of determination and diligence and let nothing deter him from giving his life for us and defeating death and resurrection. How does that help us now? How does Jesus' diligence impact us in our modern age? Well, beyond his diligence being an example, of course, I mean, we can at least take that. Beyond the fruit of it opening the way for us to get back to God, it offers a very practical practice. How? After the fall and the establishment of that choice, that poor choice of a broken relationship with God, we were all thrown into a state that was neither diligent nor determined. In fact, we were dull and dead because of sin. After the fall, we were not sharp and we became very tarnished gold. In fact, the Bible describes us as being dead and even at times dull. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sin. Matthew 13, Jesus quotes the book of Isaiah where it says, For his people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. We were dead and dull, blind even, and deaf. We were not diligent. We had no capability of diligence. But we were not left in that state. Dead things cannot be determined or diligent. But we were not left there. The Apostle Paul explains more beyond us being dead in our sin. He continued in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dull... Even when we were deaf and blind, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Think about it this way. Back in 33 AD, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, determined to go to Jerusalem. And he determined that he would be sacrificed as an atonement for our sins and then was diligent to accomplish that. In his resurrection, he was richly rewarded. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the diligent is richly rewarded. 
Having accomplished that reward, he now has offered that to us through merely placing our faith in it. Is it true or not? That's what faith basically means. Is that true? Do you put your faith in that? And in so doing, he passes that reward on to us by being with us. Matthew 28, he said this, I am with you even to the end of the age. So he accomplishes that 2,000 years ago. He says he will be with us. He's not here physically, though. We are in 2022. He was in 33 AD. But those words hover. I will be with you to the end of the age. How does that work? Well, by his Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, Jesus talks about this very thing, saying to his followers that he has to go, and that it's good that he will go, but that he will send his Holy Spirit. And his Spirit will lead us into truth and declare to us what is his. Look it up. It's there in John 16. So before the Matthew 28 words, he says the words, I got to go but I'm not leaving you alone. I will be with you through my spirit. I will give you my spirit. Perhaps that's the way he is with us to the end of the age. This is what the diligence of Jesus has done for us. And it is available for us to do. When we are diligent, it isn't out of effort, though it takes effort at times. It isn't out of obligation, though that is needed at times. It is out of the character of Jesus, which is now in us. When we are diligent, it is because we are diligent to the very end. Well, because he was diligent to the very end. For us not to be diligent would be out of character for us. Do you guys understand that? It would actually be foreign for us for not to be diligent. We have been changed. We were dead and blind and deaf. Not diligent or determined. Jesus does that, gives that to us. We are now on the other side. We have been changed because of that moment. So to be not be diligent would be out of character. It would be foreign. So don't be diligent out of obedience. Be diligent because it's who we are, out of condition now. We are conditioned now to be diligent by His Spirit. Walking in his spirit. So I ask, do you believe this? This is just diligence. There, everything else, richly rewarded, just doesn't mean diligence only. We have not only been given that by the resurrection of Jesus. Just imagine everything else that comes with it as each one of us, four of us, come up here and talk about these characteristics. And how to address things like speech and money and justice and family. We are richly rewarded because our king, our lord, our rabbi has been richly rewarded. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for... enlivening us. Thank you for showing mercy to us even while we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Even while we were neither determined nor far, we were far from diligent. Thank you that it's changed 
when that tomb was emptied, when you walked out of it, it transformed not just you, but you offered that to us. Pray that that would be true of others in our community, that they would see that. Our world needs it. So I pray that you would help us to be diligent in communicating this to others around us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.